Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Today, we're here with Nancy Adair. Nancy is a podcaster, as well as a life coach, and she focuses on recovering artists. Nancy, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Corey. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. Um, I'm excited to have you here. There's a lot that you just told me in our quick pre-interview, and I did, you know, I've been following you on Instagram. So if you could just give the listeners kind of a background on, on where your life started and how you sort of found yourselves with substance issues. So interesting <clears throat> to hear you say where your life started, because I think immediately that my life really started with recovery. However, there is a backstory, like there is for everyone. And I grew up in a very well-to-do household that was what we call the looking good syndrome, looking good on the outside and totally effed on the inside. And my dad was market research director for General Foods and an alcoholic. My mom was salutorian from Barnard, her class at Barnard in chemistry and physics and was a drug addict and alcoholic who said that she drank just to keep our, you know, her husband company, my dad. And, um, you know, I lost my mom when I was 16 years old. Uh, she died of a massive heart attack. And I found in her purse these drugs that she could make in the laboratory. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were... I consider us our family the poster family for dysfunctional families when I, you know, as I became an adult. And truthfully, the only people that have survived in my family are those of us that are in recovery. And that's my brother, my sister, and myself. And we all have, you know, my brother was the first one to come into AA. I think it's 46 years ago now. Wow. I'm 42 years sober. Wow. That's a lot of time. That's a lot yeah. of shared. That's a lot of shared recovery in your family. That's that's awesome. Um, so you're northeast. You are a northeast person, Barnard, and you know that's where. And you I live grew up. in Portland, Maine. So. All right. Yeah, I knew that. And Portland is maybe my favorite city in the in the world. So I knew it I knew is that. My favorite. <laughs> it's just great. It's great. Um, so. You know, you lost your mom when you're 16, so that's a tough place to be as a teenager. Um, that had to send you down some path. It, was it soon after, or were you already active using at that point? I was already actively using. I started smoking pot, not on any regular basis, but I started at age nine. Nine, okay. And, you know, I was drinking, oh my God, I think it was Boone Farms wine or something like, you know, really cheap, awful stuff. And I never liked drinking wine. I became a tequila drinker. You know, that was the okay. alcohol. That was my real downfall. And I would drink like 10, 12 shots of tequila at a time. This is now as a older teen. And, you know, I went to, um, Gosh, it's quite the story because I dropped out of high school at 16, not long after my mom passed. And then I went to college at age 17. Okay. So you got I, like a GED and then went on to college. 
I did. I moved out of my house. Remember, my dad was alcoholic. So I moved out at 16 to Vermont from Connecticut to Vermont, went to community college at night and took my GED. And then um, on my dad's dime, because I was so angry at him, I came back to live with him in the summer, you know, right before I turned 17. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was right before I turned 18. Anyway, I applied to 10 colleges. After getting accepted into one um, at early admission, and then my dad said, I don't want you to go. It was to the University of Redlands out in California. Okay. He wanted me to stay on the East Coast. And so I went to a very highfalutin college guidance counselor, and I think it cost $500 a pop, and we're talking 1973-74, um, to make a college application. And I did that 10 times just because I was angry at my dad. Mm -hmm. And I got accepted into all 10 schools and then chose the school that I wanted to go to that was by the beach. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good choice making really good choices and you know I was I drank my way through college um, and still managed to graduate and from one school for four years that's pretty impressive actually because a lot of people you know I found myself that's when my drinking started was in college and you know it really threw me off kilter so you know it did not take just four years um, you know the first two years of college were kind of a disaster and then it you know then it kind of clicked in a little bit um so that's it that's a pretty good you know thing that you got out in four years um after those four years where did you find yourself let's see um i moved up here to maine from where i went to college in new york and i i think i lived initially maybe with my sister or you know I was living with my sister during college breaks um my dad passed at when I was 24 um and I remember at that time I had my first house already and I was married I married right out of college I was 19 when I got married the first time okay it was actually my second marriage when my dad died at 24 so yeah <laughs> so you had a, a lot going on early in life yeah and you know i quit drinking at 24 now yeah those of my dad's death i i um was notified that he had died and i my boss at the time I was away at a conference where i was speaking and my boss came to my hotel room and asked if i needed anything someone had informed him and I said, yeah, bring me a bottle of tequila. That's exactly what I asked for. And uh, luckily, my sister had arrived before my boss came back with the liquor. Uh -huh. And um, and we drove to my brother's in Connecticut to go to the funeral. My brother was already in AA. And I saw it. I saw all these people um, gathering around him. I saw his apartment filled with flowers and cards and I saw him hugging people I, I went to a couple of meetings with him and I sat in the back and I didn't say anything and I didn't want to say anything I didn't want anyone to talk to me I had about a 10-foot wall all around me sure and um but I saw what I saw you know I saw that there was a community that he was part of and I think part of me wanted that it's a huge part of AA is the community, you know, that is um, something that I think is really, you know, important in recovery. And you listen to, you know, different authors talk and, you know, even scientists. And it's like that connection is, you know, what do they say? Connection is the opposite of addiction or something to that effect. Right. And you really get it there if you allow it, I think, is is the trick. Right. And so many people early on and their journey don't allow that connection to happen. Um, but as soon as they do, I think that's when things start to happen in, in the room for them. Um, I know that was the case for me early on. Um, 
you know, the first couple of attempts, I did not allow it. And then I think once I kind of let the voices in, something started to happen. Um, so you, you know, you were seeing that from your brother and it's like, wow, that's really nice. You know, look at all that support he has from these people. And, you know, I think we all crave that. I think every human craves that and we have less and less of it these days. So there's very few places to get it. Um, you know, some people pay for it, right? I was listening to somebody talk, I forget on whose podcast, but they were talking about the idea of like the gyms, you know, like Soul Cycle and all these types of gyms. It's like people, yeah, they pay for the exercise, but they're really paying for that community of the whole idea. And it gives them like a, you know, a church or an AA or it gives them something that, you know, some people are finding for free out there in the world. And it's, um, you know, that's what you saw that day was community. So it, it must have had a huge impact on the rest of your life. Right. Um, and you still go to AA? Is that? I, I do not, no? actually. I am a recovering food addict. Okay. And I am very involved in a food addicts in recovery 12-step program. Okay. Which is referred to as the Navy SEALs of 12 Steps. Because there are a lot of what some would say are rigid, but it's it's what's necessary to have recovery around food addiction because you have to eat every day. Yes. Then there has to be some definition of what is what we call abstinence. And for me, that's three weighed and measured meals every day with no sugar, no flour, and nothing in between those meals. Wow. That is rigid been doing that for 22 years and I go to three meetings a week and I work the steps and I have a sponsor and I sponsor other people and you know do service and that's what becomes a recovery base it's what I call a foundation to recovery mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. those tools in place um, and that includes daily meditation or quiet time and okay reflection I don't know much about food addiction, but I think I mentioned earlier, I, I did say to somebody, I think it's the hardest, probably the hardest thing to recover from because you do have to eat to survive, right? It's it's sort of, the only harder one would be like water. I, you know, I don't know what else there could be that would be harder, right? And- um, Well, you did mention, Corey, the sex and love addiction. All right. And I don't think of it necessarily in those terms as much as what's coming out nowadays or more popularized is the attachment theory mm -hmm. and for me that is what's underneath all addiction is this dependency right so that's really getting to the core of it and i think what makes food or sex addiction difficult is because there is a healthy use of food and there's a healthy sexual relationship within your partnerships, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I mean that that's good for you and your soul. It's it it's the idea of regulating your inside feelings with something from the outside, right? That's the the basics of it is, you know, if you're using anything external to regulate your insides, it's a problem, right? I know when I'm misusing sugar, I could tell you like hey i'm overeating ice cream this week because i'm having a rough week not i can also normally stop that pretty quick right it's not something that persists for me um but i can see where it's could be something that is constant um my question to you in 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 that group is and that could i just don't know anything about it are you only dealing with people who eat too much or are there people who eat too little is it is it just overall sort of just issues around food absolutely it's overall it's you know people that have been bulimic for you know a year or 10 years um people that are under eaters or anorexic and people that are overeaters or binge eaters or what's called uh grazers you know that just eat all the time yeah and um for me i remember in AA talking to people about being out of control with food because I was a binge eater and I'd eat large volumes of food. One time um, I 
I don't know what possessed me to try and count the calories of a single binge. And those binges usually lasted 20 minutes, half an hour. Uh -huh. um, and I measured, um, for instance, I had several candy bars, but I also was always trying to eat healthy. So I try the health food power bar type of nutrition bar sure. rather than candy bar. Or I remember in that binge, I was also had one pint of diabetic ice cream and those things, the tiger power bar and the diabetic ice cream had calorie counts on them. So I just multiplied that by the other pint of ice cream and the other multiple candy bars. And it was 9,000 calories wow. that I had consumed in less than half an hour. That's... And when you think about that, the denial that I was in was I was only binging maybe twice a week at that time. It wasn't daily. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand why I wasn't losing weight because I was always on a diet. Well, if you're eating 9,000 calories in a single sitting, <laughs> you know, that is several days worth of food for a normal eater. It is. And if you're not then burning it or using it, right, it becomes sort of just additive to it. And it's also just a, it, it is the same thing as binge drinking, right? It's that, you know, that idea of like, okay, I don't do it a lot, but when I do it, I really do it. And both of those things can be super destructive, right? Um, I'll, I'll hear well, I heard someone in the AA group say to me one time, you can't get high off of donuts. You know, and I, I'm like, yeah, but I can get into a car accident because I was eating and driving. Yeah. I can get arrested um, because I was, I was stealing food. At one time I had this big um, coat with, you know, the fur around the hood um, to keep warm in Maine, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had cut out the pockets of this coat so that I could steal in a grocery store and fill the bottom of the coat with food. And I got caught yeah, and arrested and humiliated because the, you know, arresting officer put me in handcuffs and took me out through the front of the store and shoved me in the back of the police car, took me down to the police station and in the elevator said to another cop, you know, don't stand too close to her. She's got sticky fingers. When we were filling out the paperwork, they asked you your height and weight. And yeah. you said, well, I'm sure you lied on your license about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, people will underplay the food thing. But like to say that you can't get high on donuts. Sure, that's a true statement. Um, but you could be using them again. Like I, I'm open and honest. If I'm having a rough day. I'll have ice cream. I'll have donut. Whatever. It just it soothes me, right? I know what I'm doing. I'm making a, a choice in that moment to use food to help me feel better. Um, but like, if you do that all the time, you are having an effect on your health, and you can't ignore that, right? Sugar, that type of sugar has an effect long term on how you feel. If I eat like that for extended periods of time, I feel it in my joints. I am sluggish. My sleep is disrupted. There are, there are effects from that. So, you know, for somebody to minimize it is, uh, it's just not fair. I don't think, you know, I don't like that attitude of like, well, that's not as bad as what I do, you know, and that's where we get into trouble with people in, uh, who are still active, right? Because then they can kind of go like, yeah, I'm not as bad as that person and not as bad as that person. Right. And then they can kind of keep using it. It's an out for them. One of the things that I find fascinating with all the people I work with is how what we turn to for soothing can be so self-destructive. Yeah. You know, and even now, like I'll have a really rough day or a long day and I'm totally into binge watching some series on Netflix and I'll take it to bed with me yeah <laughs> and uh, just the way I would with drugs alcohol or food you know and take it to bed with me and literally and then fall asleep an hour or two later than 
is my regular routine and I wake up in the morning and I'm just not ready to go. Yeah. And I might miss my morning yoga or quiet time and my whole day doesn't work as smoothly. And these are the things that I continue to turn to in times of stress to take the edge off. And I think that there's healthy ways to decompress and yet most of us turn to the unhealthy ways thinking that that's going to do something for us. Yeah. You know, some of it too is probably, you know, how easy is it to just pop in and, you know, pop on Netflix and start that, you know, episode rather than, you know, maybe do an extra yoga session, right? Like that is work and people avoid that and they don't see it as the relaxing thing. They see it as okay, that's just going to add to this day. Um, so I understand sort of the, the thought process there. And I, mm-hmm. listen, I've watched tons of Netflix shows. I, you know, it is a, uh, or just shows in general. I mean, it is one of my uh, vices, one of my, you know, between that and sugar, I think, you know, I've, I've kind of tried to slow down on social media, but another one, right, that people can easily fall into, you know, just scrolling and, you know, that feedback loop that you get is great on, on those tools. We do have a you know a culture right now of that easy gratification, so you know you're going to see more people using those tools. Um, you know, again, is Netflix the worst thing? I don't know, but if we're doing it all day, yes, <laughs> you know. So it's like, you know, it's that balance. I think finding balance is super important, and I'm sure that you do probably better than a lot of people out there. You know, well, and, and all I want is the efficacy of it. Like, I want to turn to things that soothe me that work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, that's one of the things that I say on all my psychology today, you know, listing is that I have never met an addict or an alcoholic with an alcohol or drug addiction problem. What I've met is hundreds of people with a solution that's no longer working. That's true. That's true. Because we are exceptionally bright people, if I do say so myself, you know, and and the reason why we use drugs, food, sex, alcohol is because it works. Yeah. It, it yeah. I mean it worked for me for a little bit, right? And it worked well, it for does. yeah, it worked till it didn't. And then um you know, then you try to find something else. And the problem normally is it doesn't, if you're in active addiction, the next thing probably isn't any better for you, right? You're not making an intelligent choice in that moment, right? You're going from, you know, like in your case, you said wine to tequila and then tequila could have gone somewhere else. And then you find yourself on pills or, you know, whatever the case is. And that progression could be really dangerous, Um, you know, the the progression that you would like to see would be, you know, from alcohol to, you know, maybe walking or and then from walking into working out and then working out to, you know, getting hooked on marathons or, you know, something like that. But um, that isn't the typical progression. So when you work with your client, you know, you had mentioned you do life coaching um, and you like to focus specifically with artists. Is that correct? Well, artists in recovery are what I call my you know upper echelon the people that i really love working with okay so they're the top of the pyramid you know yeah. <laughs> okay um you know in artists you know i've known quite a few and, and a lot of them do tend to be you know people who are very uh, um, you know uh, sensitive emotional i do find a lot of them tend to tend towards you know using substances you know if I, you just had to play pure numbers, right? It was like, I find that to be the case. Some of it probably is lifestyle, you know, musicians are in clubs late and comedians and all these people are always kind of around substances. Unfortunately, um, it is in a world where, um, healthy habits are, uh, pushed. So I think that's really awesome. Um, do you think that there's anything special? specific that you do for those clients versus your your normal clients that's different Mm, is it different i don't know that anything i do for them is different 
it's more engaging. Hmm. You know, I think that what you said earlier on about connection being the opposite of addiction, I think connection through our creativity okay, and connection to the creator or where does creativity come from? I see it as a very spiritual process. Okay. And you're, so, you're an artist too then? Yes. Okay. So you have this bond between, you know, the, the two sides, right? So you're like, Hey, I'm doing this over here and I'm in recovery and this is the way I do it. You could do it this way too. And so you're kind of, you know, have a yeah, through I'm line. Sure that I make it that personal, like I do it this way, okay. because when I say that I work with artists in recovery, I'm working with musicians and singer songwriters and writers and fine artists. Um, and I, I'm a fiber artist, a quilter, mm -hmm. and I'm an illustrator. So those are the things that the expressions that I have in, that are creative. It's just hard because it, it is so, the more I think about it, it's just so celebrated, right? You just said authors, like, so, you know, you think of like Bukowski, right? And like that whole idea of, you know, you write better and, you know, people will say Stephen King's books were always better when he was in active addiction. I don't, I don't believe that fully, right? I think that they were different. I don't know that they're better, right? And then you have musicians, you have, you know, the Amy Winehouses of the world and, um, you know. And any, you know, any number of other artists that you could think of that <clears throat> kind of tended towards using and then creating this magical art. And then, you know, you take it, you know, I think sometimes people fear if you take that away, that they lose something. Um, right. Well, that's one of the, that's the myth. Yes. Right. That the... Um, creative expression is a result of using rather than what any, I think 100% of the artists that I've worked with have discovered that they are more creative, clean and sober. I tend to agree. Um, you know, knowing some artists that have sort of found their path in recovery. Um, some are very public about it, but like, you know, Dave Attell, comedian, much better now, much clean, you know, clear ahead. And he's writing is like popping, you know, and, and musicians. And then there's all the actors that, you know, are very open about their um, recovery, you know, like somebody like Bradley Cooper, like, would he be as good of an actor if he was, you know, still drinking? I don't, I don't think so. You know, that's just a guess. Um, so it, it is an interesting subset of people to work with. Well, we know one thing, they wouldn't be all dying young right. <laughs> before their time. Right, and that's like the Amy Winehouse story, right? Like such a vibrant career and so tangled in, in the world of drugs. And, you know, you hate to see that or, you know, uh, you know, Mac Miller who OD'd, you know, and all these people who had these huge futures and they were so creative and so smart and but so tied to this world of drugs and alcohol and they couldn't quite get fully out of it you know they would try but something was stopping them and you know I, I would hate to think that they thought they needed that as like part of their toolbox to be good at their art um that's one story that came to my mind Corey, and i don't know if i've ever said this publicly at least before is that when i stopped drinking i stopped drawing for a period of i think about five years and a therapist I was working with suggested, I, I must have started again because I said that I was unable to do my art and not then binge eat. Mm. But, you know, it was just um, stirring that up in me. And he suggested just the opposite. He suggested that I start a pictorial journal. And whenever I felt like binge eating, eating addictively, that I pick up my journal and draw. And I had one of these black illustrator notebooks that um, black leather on the outside. And I remember that I opened that to be my pictorial journal. 
and I drew one drawing and it was of a long banquet table, like in a castle. And it had a princess at one end of the table and then a line of birthday cakes with all the candles alit. And I wrote a caption underneath it that said, none of the other princesses could come to her birthday party, but they all sent cake. Oh. <laughs> and that was the only picture I drew in that journal. And I didn't keep the journal either, you know, because I, I think it'd be really precious today. <laughs> to have it now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You should redraw it. <laughs> how how much I felt sorry for myself, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that cake was the answer. Sure. How long did you struggle with the food issues? Um, pretty much all my life. Like I was a very uh, overweight young teen at puberty. Um, prior from like nine to 12, I was very skinny. Mm-hmm. And very tomboyish and climbed a lot of trees and people were worried about that I wouldn't eat enough. Okay. And I was very picky about my eating, which is something that I look back on now as a recovering food addict and wonder if that wasn't just part of something going on, a relationship with food that was already off balance hmm. way back then. By the time I went to college, I weighed 172 pounds and I'm small. I'm, you know, 5'3 and I weigh maybe 120 today or mm-hmm. in the high teens. And um, at my highest weight, I weighed 189 pounds um, that I weighed on a scale. I stopped weighing myself at that point and probably went over the 200 mark and I didn't look. And I had the attitude that if you don't look and you don't see, it's not happening. Sure. Well, and then did, so did you finally get control of it through your 12-step group? Is that what led to the control or was there something prior to that and then you joined that group? Um, At the same time as I went into AA at 24 years of age, I started going to OA, Overeaters Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And that helped me more control my food. I don't feel like I really got the recovery around food addiction. Uh, And it helped me control it. And my weight came down to like 145, just in that range. Um, And then I fully came to this place of surrender when I came into FA. And it was fairly new. And it was an offshoot of OA. Mm. I don't know if many of the listeners know that history of the program and um, out of Massachusetts, they started their own FA faction of OA. That was more um, structured and therefore more helpful for the people that were really um, at the, you know, we call ourselves gutter drunks with food. (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know if we, you know, in my area, I think we might have some OA meetings. I don't know if we have FA. At where the, are you going? We're in New Jersey, northern Jersey. I mean, it might be closer to the city, but where I am is pretty rural. So I live out in western Jersey. It's very rural. Um, you know, we we have a good AA presence. NA is picking up. You know, we have some Al-Anon, but, like, it's slow to get some of these other newer-type meetings it's one of the best things that has come out of this clo- global pandemic is how many um, meetings went online and that there are FA meetings all over the world accessible to anyone, any place. Yes. And all the other resources. I have clients that are not willing or interested in going to a 12-step program and they're finding support through podcasts like yours and mine. And instagram following and TikTok, and it's amazing what resources are out there for us all now and completely anonymous yeah i mean it 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 was a huge thing um i do uh some recovery coaching part-time on the side uh through an organization and you know when when the pandemic hit it all went virtual 
right? So everything went virtual. So meeting with the patients went virtual and then the resources had to adjust. So all of a sudden it was, you know, there were no more AA meetings. And as soon as they started to come online, it became much easier to talk to people because some people are, you know, in our world are, are limited by resources. So transportation, right? Um, access, you know, some people don't like leaving their home. Um, some people have anxiety issues. So all of a sudden, like those online tools became super useful, fast. You know, you could refer people to AA, uh, SMART, you know, a noble step meeting, refuge recovery, you know, and it was all times, nobody had any excuse anymore. It wasn't yeah. like, yeah, I got to work from eight to five, so I can't do it. It's like, well, you got five to 11, you know. <laughs> the UK meeting time, right? <laughs> yeah. So that was awesome. And, you know, by us, we've, we've managed to keep some of those um, meetings hybrid. So, you know, people who do want that in person, are getting it, which I think is great. Again, talking about connection, you know, that there is something in those rooms that happens besides the meeting. Um, but if you can only get there virtually, do it if that's what you need to do, right? I mean, it's a great, it is a great benefit of uh, the pandemic for our world, I think. Um, so do you find that you're sending more people to the online stuff? Yes, and all the work that I do, all the coaching, you know, coaching has always been something that I did by phone, even before video platforms. And um, but I've gone everything that I do, I do by telehealth. And I'm frankly never going back to an office because I think it's more accessible and it's certainly easier for me. And yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I do all my therapy virtual now. Um, well, not all. I did, there's a, a woman that I see, we meet in person. I like seeing her in person and we have a nice time, you know, talking in, in a small room. Um, it is totally not, uh, you know, socially distant, but, um, you know, for my, for my day to day therapy, um, it is, it is virtual now. And, and my therapist said, I don't want to go back. You know, it's like, there's so much more, they, she could probably see more patients. I'm guessing that way, right? It's probably just a better throughput. Um, yeah, a lot of benefits uh, for from a pretty challenging situation for everybody. Um, made Zoom this, you know, we're talking on Zoom. I didn't know about Zoom beforehand. Right. I never did video conferencing. It was painful. Um, I was going to ask you something about Portland. Oh, so you're in Portland. So I come to Portland a lot because I do enjoy... Well, one, I enjoy just the area. We we started coming up there 20 years ago, more now. It's I'm losing sense of time. A long time ago, we came up to Freeport uh, to camp, me and my wife. It was like one of our first trips. We didn't have a lot of money, so we went camping. Um, and we kind of fell in love with Maine, and we've been coming back multiple times a year since. Um, but Portland itself has become quite a food destination, and one thing that you do have is like access to really and i don't know if people like from around the country I, i'm kind of looking at where people are listening there's people you know kind of spread diverse like portland is a pretty hip city with really good food and really good access to groceries like good groceries like you guys have good grocery stores better than i have around me in jersey um has that been helpful to you Helpful in terms of the food addiction, having yeah, access like access to good food, right? Because I I don't know that it's always been that way up there, right? Like so, there's been a change, and now you have this more sort of natural kind of access. I think. You know, I think that what's been most helpful for me in my recovery around food is keeping food really simple. Okay. So I'm less of a foodie now than I've ever been. Hmm. And the fact that Portland, Maine, has more restaurants per capita than San Francisco is just mind-blowing to me. <laughs> and I have a son who's in his mid-20s, and, you know, I love what's happening in Portland for him. Um, he now owns a house out in North Yarmouth, so it's not that far, but it's not in the city mm -hmm. either. And um, I love seeing Portland grow. I know a lot of people that are you know, I'm from Connecticut originally, so I'm not a Mainer. Mm -hmm. And um, 
even though my son was born here, I, I often say that you have to go three generations back to be truly considered a Mainer. Um, but I love seeing what's happening for property values, for the culture of our city. Um, it's, uh, I've done a lot of traveling, and whenever I come back, I feel so grateful to live here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is an. I always say when we go over the bridge, I kind of feel at home up there. It is an amazing uh, sort of community, you know, and, and I feel that way from, you know, as soon as we cross over in Kittery, up quite a bit, too. Like, I feel pretty good, you know. There is a break point where we go up a little bit, and then I feel a little bit like, eh, maybe I, this is too main for me, you know. Like, they probably know I'm not from around here. <laughs> Go up to the Forks or Lubeck or something. Yeah, like when you get way up, you know, you definitely stand out a little bit. Um, but there is just so much, you know, so much that I see up there that I wish I could take with me back to, like, New Jersey. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's services in Portland that I think are really good for people who are struggling. You know, you see that kind of baked into the community. I know some people have different feelings about that. I think it's spectacular. Um and, you know, the arts are great and the education seems really strong throughout the area. So I think there's just a lot going on up there. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is your podcast. So, yeah, you know, you have a podcast. Can you tell everybody about your podcast so that they'll have two podcasts to listen to at least? I'd love to. And then I have a question about yours. Sure. Um, so the title of my podcast is Liars, Thieves, Gluttons and Whores. And that is a description from some AA literature about addicts and alcoholics tend to be liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. So I knew when the thought of that title came to my mind that it would draw the people that have heard it in the AA and 12-step culture. Mm -hmm. And I knew it would be an instant draw. Then I uh, woke up one morning with the um, that sound from the Wizard of Oz about um, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my! And <laughs> and I started to say in my own mind, "Liars, these gluttons and whores." Oh my! And so I, the same day, contacted a singer-songwriter that I've worked with, Lori Jones, and she happens to be the guest host of this second season of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And um, she and her son put together the intro with some of her background music and they did the voiceovers being like um, Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz saying, you know, will we hear stories of addiction? And I just love it. And I have, so years back, I did a radio show that was over the internet with Women in Power Radio. Mm -hmm. And um, my show was the title of my coaching business, which is You Can Do Coaching. And so it was You Can Do Radio. And I did that for two years. And I did interviews every week. And I never got it together to do batch interviewing okay. at the time. So I was always like, oh, my God, who do I get to interview this week? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't a pod. It wasn't called podcasting. Then it's the same thing. Only one difference was that because we were part of the Women of Power Network, I got to just put up my recording of the show. And they had um, a producer that put the intro to it. And, you know, so now doing podcasting, I've had a lot to learn to do that myself and to edit in audacity and put my show up on my you know i still have a virtual assistant that does a lot of the um scheduling and yeah pitching the promo for the show and um and we did merchandise this year so oh, that's cool that's <laughs> it really cool. is exciting i still love i've always loved doing interviews with people and and then while producing the show like before it actually aired, I decided to um, co-host. It It started out only most of the first season um, with my brother. 
and a tragedy struck our family when his son, my nephew, died of an overdose to heroin cut with fentanyl. And I became another part of a statistic that I never wanted to be a part of. It's still crushing. Um, and, you know, that we just dedicated the whole show to David. Yeah. 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 I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. Like, like so many addicts, David was, um, you know, one of my favorite relatives and just a brilliant guy, so funny and did rap, even though he's, you know, young white man, he was just um, a rapper and really talented at it and um, funny. And everyone that got to know him loved him. He, even, you know, after he died, he and my, he worked for my brother, his dad, and, um, they spent a lot of time together and they were avid um, sport enthusiasts and went to all these um, basketball games together. Mm -hmm. And at the stadium, they um, reserved a seat for the season for my nephew in his name because uh, in memorial. Yeah. You know, that's like kind of, I don't know. It's just bizarre. It was totally unexpected to my brother to have that kind of honor. Yeah. Yeah. Fentanyl is um, a real problem. Um, something that we are seeing more and more of in our area. Um, you know, not only in heroin, but across other drugs now, too. And it's very nerve wracking. Um, one is, you know, somebody in our field two as a parent. And, you know, not that my children are, you know, using drugs, but like different, you know, friends, people they know. It's just it's so it's so close to um, those types of incidents, just more and more. I think we're seeing them. Um, and I just don't know <clears throat> what the solution is. Uh, you know, obviously continuing to talk like we do helps, you know, bring, uh, you know, acknowledgement to the issues and, you know, and then also the solutions, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of saying, okay, here's a path. If you want to choose to, to try it, you know, reach out to Nancy, reach out to Corey, reach out to Bob or, you know, whomever, or these local organizations and you can find help. Um, and I think some people are, are doing that. We are in my organization, we're talking a lot about how to reach younger people because that seems to be a real issue right now. Um, and Lori and I were talking about, you know, the people who are sober curious mm -hmm. that haven't gotten to that place where they're losing, you know, jobs and relationships and in crisis, but they're just saying, hmm, I wonder if life would be better if I wasn't using. Yeah, we, I think in my, so in my recovery coach training, we talked about that and it was like that, we called it like contemplation stage. So mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like, yeah, we're kind of contemplating we might have an issue, you know, so it's like it's spinning around in their head. I think now that we've put like a term to it that like people not in our business can can kind of relate to. It's like it's a good thing. And there's this this movement online and there's hashtags on Instagram and, you know, there's this rise of the N.A. drinks, which I know some people don't love. Um, I myself have never been able to drink a N.A. beer um, I just don't like it. Uh, I do drink hop water, but like that's just hops and water. So it's not for everybody. And I make my own. So it doesn't taste like the stuff in, that they sell at the store. It's just like bitter. It's like bitter water. I mean, it's very unappealing to most people. <laughs> um, but I think it's a good it's a good thing for the sober curious uh, movement to have to have more stuff. Um, well, I have a question for you, Corey, sure. about the title of your podcast, Sober by Design. Yeah. I, I come up with that. I really love it for myself. But yeah, it know. just, um, you know, so I, I'm thinking it was, uh, well, it came out of my Instagram account. So I have a like a personal Instagram account that I run just Sober by Design. And, you know, that became a big part of my recovery, I'd say five years ago um you know just sort of that online presence and you know i had kind of come up through the internet um you know message boards and and really created a lot of good relationships online through the internet and then instagram 
just was the next iteration of it. Um, and when I wanted to make an account, you know, I went to school for, I started out in school for architecture. Um, I think, as I mentioned, I had some problems with alcohol pretty early on. Um, that kind of blew up in my face quickly. Um, I did get a, I ended up with a, a bachelor's in industrial design and, um, you know, I now do work in design and construction. So, you know, I have a, a big love for design in general, but, but really my, um, my love is like architecture. So, you know, I'm looking next to me at my desk. I have my Frank Lloyd Wright books, my Rem Coolhouse books, you know, houses, you know, just books on random churches. Um, so I've always had this thing for design and I thought, okay, I'm like, I'm literally sober by design. Like I designed how I did this a little bit. I mean, you know, there was some work and, but it was, it wasn't just by pure, uh, chance. Like, and I think more so now my recovery, I'm very, um, intentional about it. So, you know, this podcast is part of it, right? So like I've had these steps, it was AA, then it was podcasts that where I was listening, books, then a little bit of the online world, recovery coaching. And now this is like the next thing for me, having really interesting conversations with people like yourself um, and kind of learning more about what people are doing just in their world and recovery, it, it more in depth. Like I can, I can glean a little bit from my Instagram feed, but not enough. And I think that, that this is just, this podcast is, just for me, <laughs> you know, if other people are listening, I think that's awesome. But really, you know, these interviews are for, for me to, to learn more about you and then the next person and the next person. And some of these people are not going to be in recovery either. Like, I think that those people are just as interesting sometimes um, for me in my, in my personal story. So it's, it's uh, you know, it just kind of started out as a play on just my love of design and it's kind of gone from there. Great. I hope that made sense. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. very much. Yeah. Um, so while I'm not an artist, I have not uh, not created any major uh, artistic works of uh, building. I do I do still work in that field. Um, so a couple of things that I like to leave with, um, really, just you know, two main things. The first is always you said you like to stream Netflix shows, so now I'm interested. I love leaving people with ideas of like things that my guests are watching, listening to, reading. So do you have any recommendations? Oh, golly. Um, <laughs> no. no. I mean, I'm just laughing because the last thing I watched on Netflix was the Mindy Project, you know, like six seasons of the Mindy Project. That's okay. I, um, you know. You know, it was just... When I'm looking for escapism, it's pure entertainment. I'm not looking for things of value mm -hmm. at that time, you know. Um, in fact, when Roe versus Wade was overturned, I listened to um, all comedy, you know, comedians in cars was what I listened to. Sure. I had to. I just needed to escape the, the, um, feeling of sinking into a, a well that I couldn't get out of. And, um, and I listened to several books. Um, Martin Short is like my favorite comedian. And I listened to the book that he did on with his own um, voice mm -hmm. on Audible. And Steve Martin was another favorite of mine. <laughs> his book? Yes. Yeah, because he yeah. had that book that he released. Uh, it was a little while ago now, but it was. Yeah, yeah I think it's called uh, Stand Up or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so anyway, that those I have no recommendations in terms of um, books to turn to that for recovery. No, no, I, I don't even want that. I like the ones oh, that okay. you gave. I, you know, comedians in cars is great I, for people who haven't seen it. It is. I don't watch it a ton. I've seen a couple, but. That's yeah. great escapism TV, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's just interesting for people to hear stuff and, you know, the Steve Martin book, Martin Short book, all that kind of stuff, I think is really good um, because my recommendations are never about um, recovery stuff. So mine today is going to be the complete opposite, um, unfortunately, and I just started it, but I could tell it's a good show. Um, 
so my wife and I watched, I don't even know the name of it, but it was on HBO. It was like a zombie show. I think it was like The Rest of Us or something like that. But there's this guy that's on there. Um, that His name, I don't even know. Pop, uh, somebody will tell me. But he is in, in that show. Then he's in The Mandalorian, which is a Disney Star Wars show. But he's in this show that I started on Netflix, Narcos. And it's about Pablo Escobar and the, the cocaine trade out of columbia and it's very historically accurate and um i've watched documentaries on that in the past it's um it's quite for people who don't understand how bad miami was in the 80s it is quite a eye-opener um the amount of murder that happened in miami and and to have gone down there in the past you know 20 years and seen what it is now it's like it's crazy um, so I like watching shows like that, that kind of give me an idea of like something from the past. So I'm going to say Narcos, despite it being fully about drug trade. Um, it, I'm taking it more as a historical, you know, fiction type show where you're, you're learning something. Um, because it, it is really interesting to know the history of the country. Cause if that was happening today, people would be losing their mind with the amount of people that were, you know what I mean? Like they were saying that they had to rent like cooler trucks for the mm. amount of people that were being murdered daily. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling like that that was happening. Um, so anyway, and then they talk about like Reagan and the war on drugs and, you know, so I think it's, a, it's an interesting show. Um, so that's my recommendation for the week is Narcos. Hopefully I come up with something better next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have any books this week. I can't read that much. I'm still stuck on a, uh, a book about um it, it's a uh, pat and oswald's wife she wrote a book on uh, the golden state killer and then she died so michelle mcnamara had written it mostly and then she didn't finish it and she passed away so it's like her work interspersed with like her editor's work and i think pat and oswald might have put some in there as well so it goes through the story of how you know she really dove into this investigation so it's a very detailed crime novel, which I also enjoy reading. Um, so, mentioned two things that I I will not do: um, reading a crime novel or a true life thriller, or watching those type of series on television right before I go to bed. Yeah, I have an a very active, avid dream life, and it just influences it too much in a negative way that I, um, I can I'm just shut that down somehow. Yeah. I don't know why, but I can read it and then it just kind of shuts off. Um, but I do find those books very interesting, you know, and, you know, especially when they can go through and kind of highlight, Oh, oh this is where we messed up. You know, if they're very clear and, and honest, I think it's a very interesting uh, read. Um, a book I am reading that I would love to let people know about is the, um, biography of Edward Gorey, okay. who was an artist um, that I loved. He he did a lot of um, very dark humor um, in black and white illustration. And to give you one example, I was brought up, my mom loved Edward Gorey, and we were brought up on one of his alphabet books called The Ghastly Crumb Tinies where um, B is for Basil who got eaten by bears and C is for Clara who fell down the stairs. <laughs> like really dark humor. So the biography is titled Born to be Posthumous. Okay. Which I just love. So. Well, I will, as always, put all these links into the uh, show notes <laughs> so people can go check it out on Amazon um, and then pick it up if they want. Um, the last thing I'll, I'm just going to ask, is there anything that you want to leave, you know, the listeners with, uh, a tool that you've used in your recovery that's helpful, uh, sort of a quick hit kind of takeaway? Yeah, I think the quick hit that I'd like to send people away with is if it's a problem for you, it's a problem. It doesn't have to be a problem for anybody else. And just to explore those you know sober curious hashtags reach out for help know that you you know there's a, a 
slogan from AA that you don't have to do it alone. You don't, you alone have to do it, but you don't have to do it alone. Like you're the only one that can start this journey. Yeah. But you don't have to do it alone and you really are not alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are great, uh, quick takeaways, Nancy. I appreciate those too. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I really appreciate it. I know this is early on in my uh, podcast, so I'm getting critiques and, you know, some feedback and trying to make it a little bit, uh, you know, more dialed in. And um, again, thanks for being on the early ones here. You're welcome. All my right. pleasure. All right, Nancy, we'll talk soon. Thank thanks. you. Have a great day. Bye-bye.